Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 27, verse 14. He who blesses his friend with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him. This is an interesting proverb. God designed us to live with each other. He designed us to live in close community with one another. And living in community with wisdom means learning social graces. This proverb became very literal for me personally back when I started college. I had been a dairyman for three years, and getting up early was a part of the job. My first week of school at New St. Andrews in Moscow, I just moved into an old house with three other guys. I was very excited about starting up a new life there, on the, and excited to be off the farm, starting school, so I got up early like I was used to, and I got all dressed and ready. I went downstairs, and I cleaned the kitchen and made breakfast, and promptly went off to wake up all my roommates for pancakes and eggs, and they were gracious. But I quickly learned that they preferred the extra sleep to the breakfast. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had to learn this wisdom, and I know that I could still improve in it. We've all known, or we may have been, that kid at school or camp or on the team who just knew how to get on everybody's nerves, but all they wanted to do was to to make friends. We've all been disappointed with an outcome in the midst of trying to do something nice for other people. Now, blessing your friend and the desire to bless your friend is a good thing. In fact, it's a great thing. But wisdom is nothing if it isn't timely. Wisdom understands that there's a right time for blessing, and there's a right way to bless. The problem with the other way is pride. You feel good, you want to do something nice, but it's all about you. You do it in your own way, on your own terms. And the consequence is confusion, because you won't get the appreciation or praise that you might have hoped for. In fact, you might get some kickback, or hard looks, or sarcastic remarks, or gruff replies. As Christians, we ought to be aware of our neighbors. We ought to be aware of what their desires or preferences are. In fact, that's what it means to love them. It means seeing them, observing them, and understanding them. If we want to bless others, and we should... We should be able to do it in a way that truly is a blessing to them and not a trial for them. Now this is important, especially for those of us who have a happy-go-lucky streak in us. Because we want to truly build each other up and live in close proximity. But when it comes to boisterous blessings, sometimes that means we need to tone it down. Other times we need to wait for the right time. And sometimes we just have to drop it altogether. God sees our hearts and he judges our motives. 
and he will bless the wisdom of compassion and grace. Which reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel. given to us your word, and we thank you that your word reveals to us your will, your way, your path to salvation, your work of redemption. Lord, we thank you that through the ages you have preserved these truths for us in the scriptures. We thank you that the church has distilled them into the the creeds. Lord, we ask that you will bless us this morning as we study Christ's ascension and his rule at your right hand. Lord, we ask that you would fill us with an awe at the power that you wield in heaven. An awe at the grace you bestow on us in our salvation. And a thankfulness for the surety we can know of your salvation. That that it is a certain thing. That no one can take it from us. But it's, it's ours because you have done it. And you have applied it upon us. Father, we pray that you will bless us now. Illumine your word. Send us your spirit. Make it come alive. Make your word come alive to us. Convict us. Teach us. Sanctify us and consecrate us for your service. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's... It's still Easter season. If you look at the beginning of your bulletins, it says it's the second Sunday of Easter. And so we continue to celebrate God's glorious vindication of Jesus Christ in the resurrection. Life after death. That is what we believe in. That God God has redeemed us from the power of death and the accusations of the devil. The guilt of sin doesn't stick any longer. Jesus is who he says he was, said he was, because God raised him from the dead. God proved that for us. Because, and because he did that, we know that he is the Christ, the Son of God. As we read in the end of the book of John a few moments ago. God ordained Jesus as the Christ, meaning the anointed one. He ordained him to be our king and priest forever. And because he is no longer held under the power of death and he holds the keys of Hades and death, he lives and reigns with power in heaven forevermore. It's not a temporary power that he has. It's eternal. It's lasting. He rules from there. And so the next two phrases of the creed that we're focusing on today are the phrases, he, as, he ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So we're looking at Jesus' ascension and his reign, that seating at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as a position of rule. Now these two truths are essential to Jesus' work of redemption. 
That's, that's the, 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 the central focus, the, the, the cause for which he came in the first place was to redeem his people, to, to set us apart, to save us from the curse. In his position as king, when he ascended into heaven, that was his coronation. In his position as king, he has authority, he has power, he has the power and the right to accomplish the salvation that he came to provide. And in his place at the right hand of the Father, he provides intercession and oversight for his people. He rules, he judges. And he rules like he said he would, like a good shepherd protecting his sheep so that none of them are lost. Now this is a turning point in the creed because we're moving from past to present. All that we've studied so far has been about who Jesus was, what he did, who he said he was, what God sent him to do. Today we're moving into where Jesus is now and what is he doing now. But first we begin with the last thing that he did in his bodily presence and that's instructing the apostles, blessing them, and rising up into the heavens. The ascension is a coronation. The Bible describes the ascension in three different passages. In in Mark chapter 16, in Luke chapter 24, and in Acts chapter 1. In Mark 16, it's, it's brief. Verse 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. And thus ends the book of Mark. So he comes, he's meeting with his people, he goes up into heaven, and they go out preaching the gospel. And notice that he isn't abandoning them. Jesus isn't leaving them. When he goes up, he turns right around and he works with them. He says... They went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord, working with them, confirmed their word with the accompanying signs. So, he goes up, they go out. This is, this is similar to what Jesus promised in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He ends the book with, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Jesus doesn't desert us when he goes to be at the Father's right hand. The second time that the ascension is described is in Luke 24. Jesus commanded his disciples to spread the gospel to all nations, but to wait in Jerusalem until they received the Spirit. And then starting at verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him And returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. So here it's added that they were near Bethany. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. Now Bethany was a little village east of Jerusalem. At the base of the Mount of Olives. And it rose... So, so you'd, go out of, uh, you'd go out of Jerusalem, you'd go two to three miles out, and then there was a little village at the base of the mount. And directly east of the temple, the temple mount, was the Mount of Olives. 
And Jesus went up there onto the mount, and that is from and from the mount is where he, he rose up into heaven. Another thing is that the disciples here accepted Jesus' departure with joy. Again, he, he wasn't he wasn't deserting them. They they understood that this was part of his plan. Now initially after he died, remember they, they were fearful and they, they hid in the upper room and and they were disbelieving when the women first came and told them that Jesus wasn't in the tomb anymore. Uh, but it, over the course of the time from the resurrection until this ascension, they had grown and matured and understood the, these marching orders that he gives us at the end of each of the Gospels. The, this command to go out and bear witness, to declare what he has done and who he was. So this, this wasn't separation that caused anxiety or misery. It was an affirmation that everything was exactly as it should be. So he, he rises up. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. That's, that's what their lives consisted of after Jesus rose. Watching him go up into heaven was proof. That he was who he said he was. It was proof that he had all authority in heaven and earth. He was the Lord and master of the universe. And the disciples could trust him and follow him wherever they were. So it was tremendous cause for worship and praise. Luke gives us the story of the ascension again in Acts chapter 1. This is the third passage which gives us the, the actual events of the ascension. Um, and this is Acts 1, verses 1 through 12, actually. It's a little bit bigger passage than what I had listed in your bulletins. So starting at verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, having being seen by them, during 40 days. So here we have uh, the fact, we learn the fact that the ascension was 40 days after the resurrection. And Jesus was raised from the dead. And during 40 days, the, the apostles saw him. Next, notice that Luke's focus in this passage is on kingdom, power, and rule. The ascension is about Jesus being crowned. Uh, so, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's when Jesus was raised from the dead. He comes back and he tells them all these things had to happen because of what the scriptures taught. In the Psalms, and, and in, the, in the prophets, and in the law. And these things had to happen so that God's kingdom could be established. So he speaks to them for 40 days about this. And then being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, so he's been talking to them about the kingdom of God. They're getting it. They're understanding that what Jesus' work is about is establishing kingdom. So even the disciples understood that his ministry had always been about rule and dominion. From the very beginning of when Jesus got baptized, he went out preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. 
That's what, that's what the gospel was. The good news of the kingdom of God. What the, the apostles didn't get, and they still didn't get at this point, was the nature of that kingdom. They're looking for an earthly, a materialistic kingdom. They're looking for Israel to be set as, uh, as the ruler of the nations again, like, like it was under David and Solomon. Um, and the book of Acts is written so that we learn and that we can understand that that was not the, 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 the right take on it. And Jesus immediately answers that problem. Listen to what he says. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So he says, You're asking the right question, but this isn't that you're, you're asking it in the wrong way. You know, yes, seek the kingdom, be my witnesses, be my soldiers, go out there and fight the good fight. But it's, it's not for you to know how the outcome is going to work out. But, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he's saying, you don't need to know the outcome. You don't need to know the way that this is going to work. But you will have the kingdom power. You will be given the strength, the ability by my spirit to go out and conquer the world. Starting where? Right where they are. Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus has already told them that he has all power in heaven and earth. Now he's displaying it for them by floating up into the clouds. He's in heaven and he's coming back in the same way that he went. With glory and power. And finally Luke reveals that the the ascension happened on the Mount of Olives. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So there you have your, your... Two, three miles out, directly east. And, and, the, and, and the picture here is glorious. You have Jesus Christ, the man who's murdered on the cross, and three days later he comes back from the dead, and his disciples rejoice and, and, and have great joy. And, and for 40 days, Jesus preaches to them that this, these things had to happen because of what the scriptures said. This is the way, this is the truth, this is the life that God has always intended for you, his people, to have. And it looks like this. And, and, and it's life from the dead. Resurrection life. And then he goes, and he goes out east of the temple... Where the sun would rise every day, every day. The sun would rise in the east. And, he, and, and Jesus is the sun. He is the light that shines on the people. He's, he's, he's in essence bringing us to the threshold of the heavenly temple. We're looking up at the light of God. 
And he goes up, and he goes up, and he, and he rises into this glory cloud and disappears in it. And he's saying, I'm going up to be your king and your priest. To be in the presence of God to make intercession for you. You will go out, you will be my disciples, you will be my soldiers, and you will go out and, and instruct the people in these truths. You will spread this gospel because it is the only way for us to be saved. But I am going to be with the Father, and you will wait ten days till Pentecost until you are given the power to engage in the battle through the Holy Spirit. And we'll be getting into that. Because after this, this is Jesus' last, primarily his last physical instruction and teaching of his, of his disciples. After this, Jesus works primarily through his spirit in the world and through his people in the world. We do receive a few glimpses of Jesus' post-ascension in the New Testament. The first time is at the stoning of Stephen, and this would have been not long after Jesus' ascension. Acts 7. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus. This is what, he do, this is what he's doing in heaven. Standing at the right hand of God empowering his saints and, and, and calling them to faithfulness, comforting them in their hour of need. Again, the Apostle Paul, he saw Jesus on his way to Damascus. So he's on his way to persecute the church. And remember, Jesus shines a light down from heaven, knocks him off of his horse. He's flat on the ground. And he, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting and then he gives him instructions. He stopped him in, the track, in his tracks and called him to follow him. That's in Acts chapter 9. And it's also again in Paul's testimonies about his conversion in Acts 22 and 26. In Acts 23, Paul was, was thrown into to jail uh, in Jerusalem. Because he was preaching the gospel and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're fighting over him, and, and the, the centurion threw him in jail. You guys remember that story? So this, is, this would have been you know, 25 or so years after Paul's conversion. And, and he, Jesus appears to Paul when he's in prison in Jerusalem. And he says in Acts 23, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So again, Jesus appears post ascension to Paul to give him instruction. A few times in his epistles, Paul references that his conversion or his visions of Jesus. Uh, the book of Hebrews spends a good bit of time outlining what Jesus' work in heaven is as the priest king in the line of Melchizedek. Now that's, an, that's curious, isn't it? Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about Jesus as the, the, the better high priest than the, the Israelite, uh, the Aaronic line. Now, why is that so key? Well, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, 
And he was the priest that Abraham brought tithes to. He was a, he was, he was, he was a higher order of priest than Aaron was because Levi himself gave tithes within Abraham to Melchizedek. So Jesus is reigning in heaven at God's right hand, and that reign is, is intricately connected. Tongue tied. That, that reign is intricately connected to his intercession on our behalf. So that line of Melchizedek is, is, is it makes that connection for us. That, that we have both a king and a priest, and they are, they are necessarily connected to, together. And finally, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, nearly 50 years after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to John in a vision on Patmos. And he related to that, that to us in the book of Revelation. And notice the, how Jesus appears to John 50 years after his resurrection. I mean, John and James and Peter were the, the three amigos when it came to being close to Jesus. They were, they were his intimate friends. I mean, John was the one who had his head resting on Jesus' bosom at the, at the Last Supper. And asked him, is it I? When, he, when Jesus uh, professed that somebody would be uh, betraying him. I mean, these, these were the ones who, who went with him to see the transfiguration. They were the ones who went with him to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was, into, he was Jesus' cousin. He was intimate with Jesus. He was close to him. Fifty years later, he sees Jesus in this vision. And he falls down as dead. Because of the glory that Jesus has in his sanctification and his, and his magnificence and holiness. Jesus is God and we must worship him. He is king. Now as I said before, these are only glimpses of what Jesus is doing in heaven. Because the vast majority of his work is the Holy Spirit. But we're going to be getting into that in a couple weeks as we progress into the creed. But these glimpses give us hints as to the nature and the glory of Jesus' kingship. He's our king. And Hebrews ties, uh, ties his kingship together with, um, with two psalms. It, it ties two psalms together. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. In, in Hebrews 5... Verses 5 and 6, we read this. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, God the Father, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So, here we have Paul, the author of Hebrews, quoting Psalm 2, which says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And, and, and we read that responsively this morning, you'll recall. But the central theme of that psalm is God's power and rule. It says, Today I have begotten you. It's a reference to, to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. So when we think of begotten you, we tend to think of birth, Right? So a lot, I, when I, before I studied this, before, when I studied this back in seminary, but before I studied this, um, 
I always thought of, you know, today I've begotten you was speaking of, you know, Christmas. But no, it's talking about Jesus' establishment in his reign. It's talking about his resurrection and ascension. So he sits in the heavens and laughs at those who would even think to break free of his reach. He, he rules in the midst of his enemies. His enemies are attacking him. His, they, they counseled the rules, rulers of the nations counsel together. To, and and they're, they're, gonna, they're conspiring to break free of God's rule. And it's such a joke. Because of who they're talking about. And who he is. He sits in the heavens and laughs. Because they even would think about that. And the conclusion of the psalm is righteous fear. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. As Christians, as those who profess the name of Jesus Christ, we serve an absolute monarch and king who rules heaven and earth, life and death. There's no escape from him. You are either on his side or you are dead. There's no in between. There's no middle ground. In him there's no fear. You're set free. You're blessed. Outside of him there's no peace. There's no hope. So that, so that because of this, the gospel is both balm and a balm. It's a healing balm, washing away sin, and inviting all men to life and glory. It is the answer to our problem. That's what the gospel is. But it's also a nuclear missile obliterating all foes. If you want to latch on to your sin, if you refuse to repent, if you're going to harden your heart, if you're going to hold on to your pride, if you're going to rage against God, like the heathen nations do, you'll be destroyed. Now the passage regarding Melchizedek is from Psalm 110. And this is a coronation psalm that David wrote. Interestingly, this is also the psalm that Jesus quoted when he was being attacked by the Pharisees and Sadducees. Remember they were trying to catch him in his words? You know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Right? Or there's a man, he had seven, or a woman who married seven husbands. Who's, whose wife? Is there, there's no really a resurrection, is there? Jesus answers these, these, these foolish questions with great wisdom. But then he comes back with another question. He says, how is Christ David's son, yet David's Lord? As the psalm says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your, your enemies your footstool. So God said to the Messiah, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And the Messiah is my Lord. How can the son of David be David's Lord? And it's only because he's the son of God that he's David's Lord. So there's this powerful connection here between what Jesus does to stop the mouths of those who are attacking him. And this psalm is all about crushing 
Christ's opponents. It's, it's that coronation song where God established his, his king to rule with absolute authority. Because Jesus will reign until all his enemies are put underfoot. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now Peter connects the dots in Acts 2. He quotes this verse. And, and he declares that David wasn't writing this about himself. Peter connects the dots for us. He says, this is talking about Jesus. And it caused the Jews to cry out in despair. When Peter makes those connections, he says, look, you conspired to kill him. You put him on the cross. He died. But death wasn't able to hold him down. And God raised him up. And he is now sitting at the right hand of God until all of his enemies are his footstool. And what did the Jews respond with? They were cut to the heart. And in despair they cry out, Men and brethren, what do we do? Can you imagine? You were part of the crowd that said, Crucify him! And you find out now that he is God, judging and reigning from heaven. What do we do? What hope is there for us? And Peter has a, a marvelous answer. Repent and believe. And your sins will be forgiven. That's the gospel. It's that healing balm. So, what, what do we do? Now notice in the psalm, I'm going to continue going through Psalm 110. Notice in the psalm, now, the, the nature of his rule. So the Lord said to my Lord, here, be the king. Sit at my right hand until all of your enemies are subdued under you. Now, now this, is, this is what his rule is like. He rules in the face of opposition. Verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He doesn't have to fear his enemies, right? He's already gone through the worst that they could throw him. Death. Throw at him. Death. And, he came, and God took him out of that. Next. He rules a free people... And his rule is refreshing. Your people shall be volunteers in the days of your power. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. So he has a free people, and his reign is refreshing. Next, he reconciles with authority. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Here we have the Hebrews passage. This is where that, that phrase comes from. This is, okay, so his people are free. They're volunteers. They voluntarily serve him. They love him. His rule is refreshing. And he reconciles us. He has the power to reconcile us because he is God and he is the king that God has anointed and proved who he was through the resurrection. And finally, Jesus judges the earth without fear. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up the head. Jesus judges. And that's, that's hard. That's hard teaching. 
It's not soft. When we proclaim Jesus Christ as King and Lord, we're saying that there's, there's a judgment coming. And that's painful for sinners. And we'll come back to that next week, because that's the next phrase in the Creed. Now the point of all of this, Jesus' coronation and his ascension, is to give us courage, because Jesus rules through us. We are citizens of heaven. We belong to our King. Colossians 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We belong to our King. We participate in his life. He's atoned for, uh, uh, for us in his death, so we participate in his death. We're citizens of heaven. Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he's able even to subdue all things to himself. Get that. That citizenship... The effectiveness of that citizenship for transforming us is tied to Christ's ultimate authority to subdue everything. Jesus is the head of the church and the church is his body. Because we are his body. and Because he is the king who rules sovereignly over heaven and earth. We're called to be a warlike people. A martial clan. God calls us to be an outpost of his army. We're the church militant, called to stand boldly against the powers of the world and the devil. We're called to serve without fear or shame. Stand on the rooftops. Declare the truth of who Christ is. He's righteous. He's good. He's loving. He saves the world. Don't be afraid. Don't back down. Don't hide from his enemies or yours. Paul gives us an exhortation in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. He tells us that he wants us to know the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe. It's the, 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 the power that he demonstrated in the resurrection and in the ascension. He's far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named. Not only in this age but also in that which is to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, he doesn't leave anything outside of Christ's purview. Christ is our Lord. And his life and his promises are our promises. So when we obey, we do it in hope. Because we have no reason to fear. Our salvation is certain, even in the face of persecution and death. The, the classic text for that is this Romans 8, 34 through 39. Where neither height nor depth, principalities or powers, nothing can separate us from God's love. 
So as we close out here, I want to just review a few things. First, we are a truly blessed people. We are people who God has called out of nothing into hope and courage. He, he, he's covered our, 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 our sin. He's forgiven it. He's given us white robes of righteousness so we can stand in God's presence. He invites us into the throne room of God. He's, he gives us sure promises and assurances. that it, So we don't need to fear or have trepidation because of our sin or because of the enemies that are, that are existing in our world. He's conquered it all. We live under his rule. We live under, in his age. It's the age of our Lord. It's the age that was to come. Today, Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. And surely, as Psalm 2 puts it, he's asking the Father that he might have the nations as his, as his inheritance. So, God is establishing his kingdom through the, to the ends of the earth, like he told us to do in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is asking God to give him the ends of the earth. And he's sending you and me out to go do it. (laughs) He sure picks weak people sometimes, doesn't he? Who are we? Seriously. Nothing. And that's all the glory of God. He takes people who are nothing and turns them into victorious nobles and rulers. He makes us kings and priests. Like John said in Revelation chapter 1. We are kings and priests because Jesus took us out of nothingness, out of death, and set us on high. Just like the apostles, it's not for us to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own hand. We can get frustrated. We can ask the question, God, now are you going to do it? Now? We don't need to know the answer to that question. It's not for us to know that. Because just like the apostles, we have everything we need to know that his gospel is true, his salvation is real, and that we need to follow his orders. Plain and simple. So let us live in bold and faithful truth, proclaiming and declaring our risen and ascended Lord, who ever lives for our peace and salvation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you, we glorify you, we worship you, and we praise you. For you have established your kingdom on the earth. And you are pushing it into the ultimate far reaches of the ends of the earth. For we cannot see everything. We don't comprehend. But what we do see, what you have revealed to us is enough to give us a sense of your majesty. And a vision for your will. Father, we pray that you will fill us with a heart and a spirit to dutifully follow your commands, to do your work, to establish your kingdom. Father, we pray that you will bless us and help us to apply
apply these truths to our lives all the time, but especially even this day and this week. Father, we now conclude as you taught us. Our King and our Lord has prepared a magnificent banquet for us. He entered into our deadness, our vanity, our nothingness, in order to be our anchor and rock. He leads us out of the confusion and darkness. He reveals light and truth. And He shows to us God's love. Here we are reminded of the costliness of our salvation. Jesus died for us. But God has vindicated and justified Him. He's glorified and lifted Him into eternal glory. Now we are invited to participate in His death, forsaking the world and our flesh, so that we might enter into His life, powerful life, that saves and refreshes. Enter willingly as volunteers, and with faith, believing in His goodness, and trusting in His atonement. We serve a living God, and we belong to a living Lord. Praise God for the food and drink that bestow life for His Spirit and for His grace. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.